the boat that stopped world trade and birthed a million memes, how Lil Nas X is changing the music industry, and a breakdown of the allegations against David Dobrik and the Vlog Squad. We're Maggie and Jasmine, and this is Culture Club, our weekly chat about pop culture, current affairs, the internet, and our lives. We acknowledge that the Wurundjeri and Boon people are the traditional custodians of the land upon which we live, work, and record this podcast. We would like to pay our respects to Elders past, present, and emerging. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Another week as <laughs> Um, I have no news this week. Mm. Nothing. Nothing exciting happened, really. It was a very normal week. In I love it. It reminds me of those tweets and TikToks. It's like, no thoughts, just hot <laughs> or whatever. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, kind of like that. No thoughts. Actually, lots of thoughts. Just anxiety is more like it. Oh, no. Maybe that's why I didn't do much. But I went to the footy yeah. again yesterday. So oh. I've been to two games in a week. You're a footy head. I know. I was even yeah. hurt Which game? Wait, 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 wait. Let me try guess. Did you go to the uh, – wait, wait, wait. Did you go at night or in the afternoon? I know, I know who played. I went in the evening. Okay, so um, it's Melbourne – Deep, whatever, blue and red. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and was it St Kilda? Yay. Oh, my God. That is such a rarity for me. If anyone knows me in real life, I don't know much about footy. Very happy with myself. Yes. Well, that's where I went and I normally – so I didn't grow up in Victoria and you know when you move here that you, like, have to go for a footy team. Um, so I just <laughs> went for who my grandparents go for, which is North Melbourne and – Good when club, I'm not solid. going for them, I'm going for Melbourne. So I was wearing like my blue and red scarf, had my hat. It was fun. I like it. I like the energy and it's nice to like be around mm. like a crowd again and to yeah. hear people cheering. Like I literally got goosebumps from like the booing and the cheering and like <laughs> it's the energy of it all. It was really fun. And then yeah. halfway through I realized that Ed Sheeran was there and I was like, yes. oh, I wish I had some binoculars to like <laughs> – See who was in the gla- little glass box. Um, yes. Had some hot chips. Yeah, that was really fun. It's nice to do something oh. that's like not related to my work or, mm. um, yeah, went with family. So it was like very wholesome. That's so wholesome. I feel like we kind of connected because for those who don't know, AFL is in the suburb of Richmond. And I was there last night. I was at the corner hotel at like 11 p.m. onwards. So just as the footy finished, I arrived there. It was packed to the rafters and it's very, it's kind of embarrassing. I've been in the same outfit for 24 hours now and um, I'm wearing what I wore last night and it is this red knit top and blue pants. So it looked like I was at the footy going for Melbourne, whatever. I, I, I fit in, Jazz. I fit in there. Love that. But also the game wasn't held in Richmond. What? It wasn't at the MTG? No, it was at um, Marvel. Oh, God, okay. (laughs) I love the energy, though. I love the energy that you were so, like, excited to, you know. know. Oh, that's why traffic was good. Tom and I were like, oh, my God, like, Uber's going to be trash. Everyone's coming home. And then we were like, wow, it's so empty. So, okay, why? But did you go out? Yeah, are you proud of me? Yeah. Um, actually, last night was Pesa, which is Jewish Passover. So we had a massive dinner with uh, like Tom's extended family. That was super cool. I think it's the second time I've been, and it's like such a different experience to me. For me, um, I love learning about the different traditions and the customs associated with it. But yeah, and then I went out to corner corner. I was out past one a.m., which is a first for me. <laughs> I don't go, stay out, as you mm-hmm. know, so that was nice. But, yeah, I also went to a music festival this week in a COVID first, which is so weird, but it was great. Um, I've actually never been to a multi-day festival. I only go to one day once. Yeah, me too. I've never been to a multi-day. Did you camp or? No, no, because it was one day. We <laughs> stayed at, <laughs> what are you talking about? I stayed at a very nice Airbnb slash like hotel and we left the festival a little bit early and then went to like a bougie restaurant for dinner and we came in like 
not acceptable clothing, I think, because we came from the festival and I was like, oh, I don't think, don't think this is allowed. But anyway, it was very nice. Who did you see? Jungle Giants, Alice Ivy, a few DJ sets. So it was, it was really funny. It was really, it was really good. We were split up into paddocks because of COVID and like we were kind of near the back because we came quite late. Um, but it was nice because I do get a bit like anxious in big crowds. So it was actually nice having a smaller spot and being able to actually dance and groove around. So I enjoyed it. I'm going to another festival there next month as well. So catch me there soon. So one big news story that I've been thinking about for the last few days has been the Suez Canal blockage. And it's been everywhere in terms of every time I open my TikTok app, there's like jokes being made about it. There's sea shanties happening. And then it's also like in the mainstream news as well. So have you heard about this? I am honestly the worst person for this segment because I was off my phone when most of this news broke. So I just jumped on Twitter and I saw a tweet like, rarely do good boats make history or something like that. And I was like, that is so random. Okay. Okay. Twitter, go off. Um, so I don't know much about this. So I am very excited for you to tell me what's up. Okay. So basically a 400 meter long and 200,000 ton vessel became wedged in the Suez Canal. Now, the Suez Canal is the main waterway that was built in Egypt in 1869, and it connects the Mediterranean Sea to the Red Sea. So that means it connects trade as well from Europe to the Indian and Western Pacific Oceans. So obviously very important. And Mm -hmm. if you can't get through that way, you can take another route basically down past Africa, and that can take either eight to 10 days or up to two weeks. Wow. So obviously that's this is a very, very important trade route for the world's trade. So on Tuesday, the ship called the Ever Given, which is owned by Japan, got stuck. Some people said it was because of the high winds and a dust storm, while the Suez Canal Authority said it could have been human error. But that will mm. get brought up in the investigation. So there's now just sitting there 300 vessels with international cargo just waiting. And some analysts have said that there could be an impact on oil product if the block continues. 12% of global trade goes through this route. So it's very essential. And according to the BBC, the blockage is holding up $9.6 billion US dollars of goods each day, which equals $400 million per hour. Jeff Bezos could never. (laughs) So, I mean, it's quite ridiculous and there are lots of jokes being made about it. I was like laughing at them for sure until you sent me Jackie Alexander's Instagram story where she posted an article by Business Insider that said there are about 20 cargo ships with cattle and livestock on them and that if these this blockage doesn't get removed then they'll starve and die and it's one of those things where I didn't even think about that Mm. it's just you get swept up in like the memes and the jokes of it all but like it's a quite a serious thing that's happening what do you think about it now I've explained a little bit more yeah it's an interesting one because This story has kind of made me feel like a little bit of a ditz because I feel like I'm not very knowledgeable about economics and geography. And I was, I didn't even realize, I was like, oh yeah, things are still being transported via waterways. I didn't even, that didn't even click with me. That's just so kind of, it feels very far removed from my life, but obviously it's not. And it also just sounds funny because Obviously, we're a very technology-driven society. We can literally get microchipped and there's self-tying sneakers, but we're still using transportation that was built in 1869, which maybe that's very naive and ignorant of me, but I didn't really clock that. I was like, oh, I'm sure we have very fast, very fast and efficient ways of doing stuff, which I'm sure this was until this moment. (laughs) Yeah, it is something that you don't think about in your everyday life. But my friend has messaged me because I posted about this on my story and she works in the maritime industry and she says the industry is stressed and that another potential economic crisis is incoming because of it. 
which I hadn't seen. She says the like international maritime people have made a statement. So it's like quite a serious story. And especially with the Mm. livestock stuff, that made me think like, oh, maybe I shouldn't be laughing at this, like especially being vegetarian my whole life. But it kind of got me thinking about how millennials and Gen Zs especially kind of use memes and TikToks and Twitter, et cetera, to laugh about things that are serious. Like we've been exposed to so much and every day we're exposed to more information than our even our great grandparents would have been exposed to in the whole lives. So because of the like desensitization to all this news coming in all the time, I think that we make jokes about it because it's so ridiculous. It's out of our control. Who knows what the ramifications are going to be after living through the global pandemic where everything is uncertain what else can you do except laugh? Mm-hmm. What do you think? Yeah, it's definitely a coping mechanism, right? Mm. I think that's how a lot of people go through life, um, using humour to make light of serious things, even in the personal life, not necessarily big world events. I also think it's a digestible and more accessible way of getting information. It's at least more entertaining that's obvious because imagine your tiktok feed just full of news like hard news reports on Mm. this canal thing you'd probably just skip through it so my friend matilda bosley she works at the guardian and she is also head of their like the guardian tiktok she made a um video about this and it's got 1.2 million views hers is less of a joke it is more kind of telling hard news in a entertaining and easy to understand way but then there's also been jokes about it as well so it's such a crazy situation maybe that's the way that we process information these days as well yeah and I think a few weeks ago now when Facebook had that media ban of Australian news outlets you kind of proved that we're in kind of media bubbles we love the media because we're we're in it we write we consume content, etc. But I don't think that the average person is the same. And there are so many hurdles for people to be engaged in news. For instance, it might be a lot of jargon. It might be behind paywalls. It might just not be of interest to them. It's hard to get a hold of. But I think having news presented in a way that's engaging, informative, maybe funny, that's great. It's kind of connecting to the masses more. Like TikTok users who might not read the news will still get information like this. Yeah, but then you get into the argument of you have to check your sources and you can't just believe everything you see on TikTok, all that stuff. Like, Oh, yeah. The way people deliver things is so believable. I've seen jokes mm. where someone's like, did you know that the word podcast comes from the latin something something and they go on and then they're like just kidding don't believe everything you see and i'm like oh my god and i started being <gasps> that's so interesting so you know you've got to be careful but that's a, another topic <laughs> i think reputableness of sources and trying to weave through the internet and try find out and trying to find out what's true and what's not true is so difficult for instance in queensland just last night there was a new like corona case and we were all told that oh this guy while he was awaiting his test results he held a party of uh, for 25 people and then this like the next day it turned out that wasn't true and I was like oh wow okay it's it's very hard sometimes because that did come from a reputable source Mm. the moral of the story is the ship is still stuck check your sources don't believe everything you see on tiktok but also if you get your information from somewhere that's fun and it's joking you do you Before this next segment, we would like to pop in a content warning. We'll be talking about sexual assault and rape. So today we'll be talking about the current downfall of David Dobrik, who is a leader of the Vlog Squad on YouTube, which has been the subject of a number of sexual assault allegations in the past few weeks. So if you've never heard of David or the Vlog Squad, we'll break it down for you. I just want to know, Jazz, had you heard of David and had you watched any of his videos before? So I had heard of him because I participate in internet culture, but I hadn't actively watched anything. Like I'd seen bits and pieces 
mostly on TikTok. I remember when him and Liza broke up. That was a big deal, but I kind of was like mm, a bit removed from it. I remember it. that. So this drama, I guess, has kind of been the first time that I've um, really, really probably looked into him. Like I thought he was about three years older than me. He's six weeks older than me. He's only 24. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. So, yeah, basically David was – one of the original Vine stars, so vintage now. He started uploading videos in 2013 and on Vine he collaborated with a number of other stars, including Liza, who I just mentioned, Jason Nash and Gabby Hanna. After Vine closed down, he moved over to YouTube where he was a part of the group called Second Class and then he launched his own YouTube account in 2015, which is where he's kind of really blown up. So the time of recording, he has 8.2 billion views over his content and 18.4 million subscribers. As of February, it was 18.9 and he's lost, you know, quite a few hundred thousand because of all of this stuff. This is so wild. And just a rundown of his content as well, if people aren't too familiar, he's known for posting videos that are exactly four minutes and 20 seconds. <laughs> Very mature. Love it. But his content is super fast paced and it is full of wild things. You know, in one video, it would not be surprising if he buys his friend a car and then meets a famous celebrity and then does some wild prank and also like a skateboarding challenge where he gives out free merch to passerbyers. It's really fast paced, full on. I don't even know how to describe it. It's kind of like pranky that like YouTube prank style, right? Where all of the titles of his videos are in caps lock and it's like, I did this, like super fast, like go, 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 go. I read that The mm -hmm. Verge, which is a technology publication, described it as like the TV show Friends, but for vloggers. So it's like they've created this kind of mm -hmm. sitcom life. And the vlog squad, they're all friends. They all know each other. Wall Street Journal also called him Gen Z's Jimmy Fallon um, a year ago. The same publication, The Verge, credited him for successfully bringing the podcast to YouTube, the podcast format. So like a video podcast. Yeah, I found it interesting that back in October 2019 and April 2020, he was listed as the most popular media personality among teenagers, according to a survey. And even throughout lockdown um, for most of last year, he didn't post for months as well. And his views continued, of course, to increase and increase. And only recently, um, when I was watching his vlogs just before all these allegations came out, like he moved to another incredibly massive house. His old house before that is um, on Architectural Digest as well, and you'll see how affluent and wealthy he really is. It's wild. But yeah, another random fact that you showed really befuddled me. Apparently, um, People Mag named him the sexiest heartthrob of the year, over Harry Styles and Shawn Mendes. What? <laughs> but that just proves his influence that <laughs> like he's won Nickelodeon Choice Awards and he presented the American mm. one of the American Music Awards. So it's kind of like, yeah, he has a lot of power and influence. So you've got this whole community of super wealthy, famous young people that grew up on the internet from the age of 18 to now their mid-20s. They put their lives on the internet for years and what could go wrong, right? <laughs> so in this segment, we will be going through the allegations and then the subsequent apologies and I guess aftermath that have come about in the past few weeks. Back in February of this year, a former Vlog Squad member, Seth Francois, accused David of sexual assault after he was tricked into kissing Jason Nash while blindfolded. He also accused a group of racism because he's the only black person in the group, so he felt pressure to participate in things that came off as culturally insensitive. Yeah, and kind of describing the culture that David created being the leader. Francois said in another podcast that he was fearful of being seen as like a letdown or like not one of them if he wasn't willing to do something for a video. He said, quote, it was an unwritten thing where you see a pattern of people saying, yo, I'm uncomfortable with this. Then all of a sudden they disappear and they're not in videos anymore. Yeah. And that, that's not the only case as well. Um, my friend is obsessed with Trisha Paytas and watches her videos a lot. I haven't, but apparently, um, she talks about David 
in this sense as well and the fact that a lot of his skits and pranks are very scripted so he'll get people to you know refilm things and it's very contrived as well and it seems like he does of course hold all the power because it is his channel um, and also in the same month another former member Nick Kiswani accused David of bullying him. So there has been talk over the past few months of like bullying and these things coming out. This month however Things took an even more serious turn when a woman came forward to publication Business Insider and accused Vlog Squad member Dom Zagladis of rape. The woman, who is going by the pseudonym of Hannah, was 20 at the time of filming in 2018 and said she was an extra in one of David's blogs. Some of her university friends had been DMing Dom over Instagram, according to transcripts that were provided by BI. Dom said he wanted to, quote, hook up with the students and some of Hannah's friends were interested. According to the article, Hannah says that her friends watched the vlog squad and they knew that Dom's, quote, character was a sex addict, but they didn't know where the character started and ended and they weren't sure if they were actually going to be having sex that night. Some of the messages state, quote, the sexy stuff won't be in the vlog, right? So that's from the students. And then Dom said, quote, might need to take a pic just to show Dave so he believes me, ha ha. So Dom was 23 at the time and is referring to David Dobrik in those texts. Yeah, so Hannah went on and told Business Insider that members of the vlog squad supplied them with alcohol when they were underage and then Dom raped her after she was too incapacitated to consent. David filmed Hannah and her friends at the apartment and as she was going into the bedroom with Dom, David then uploaded the footage to YouTube as a threesome plot titled in all caps, she should not have played with fire, exclamation mark, exclamation mark. David said that Hannah consented to like being filmed and then the next day he messaged her and said, are you okay if I use the footage from last night? And she said yes. So that's why he put it up and then a few days or weeks later she felt uncomfortable and asked it to be deleted but it had already received five million views they go into this article they go into a lot of detail about that night it's quite confronting hannah has basically said everything that happened that her friends had to help her walk afterwards like she couldn't she was so drunk she couldn't walk she was slurring her words Mm. um she felt coerced you know she was definitely not coherent enough to consent at all and this is like a power dynamic like even if she consented to the footage being used like Mm. she's 20 these guys yeah they're in the early 20s as well but like they're very very wealthy very powerful influential people so like she obviously felt this pressure and I think that's what the other vlog squad is coming forward as well like talking about the bullying they're saying that it's this culture that's like the issue as well Mm. Yeah, let's get into the apology. Um, before we go into David's apology, Dom also posted one on his channel. Um, and all the comments about it are like, this isn't an apology at all. He kept labeling it like YouTube drama. And honestly, it was just despicable and it was by no means acceptable at all. But yeah, let's look at David's because he has posted a couple videos at the time. One day after this business insider article is published david posts a 2.5 minute not even a song songs worth um youtube video on his account titled let's talk but it wasn't on his main account where he has you know a billion subscribers it's on his views account which is like his second podcast account that he hosts with jason nash who is 45 by the way not being ageist but like bit weird that you're 45 and you're hanging out with like 20 year olds oh it's like a really it's such a weird dynamic when you watch it I still don't understand and a lot of the time like you know he hangs out with like Charlie D'Amelio and and other people it's I, I'm just so confused by it but anyway and he dated Trish Paytas and that's the connection there by the way what yeah oh my god I was trying to figure so out the loop. I feel like when I was doing all this research I honestly felt like the meme of like the guy with the whiteboard and like all the clippings like going everywhere yeah it was a bit like that um so yeah Trish and mm-hmm. Jason dated for a few years and like that's how Trisha is like involved with the blog squad and um, why she can like say so much about them now is because she was kind of like a part yeah. of it. So back to the apology. David is t- – yeah, it's titled Let's Talk, but then he turns his comments off. In the video, he says that 
when people no longer want to be involved with videos that like they might have participated in a year or two ago, he deletes them because he doesn't want anyone to feel uncomfortable. He says he doesn't work with Dom anymore because he doesn't align with some of his actions and he says he hasn't worked with him for two years since 2018. We'll just put a little bit of the video in here. And with with people in my life that I don't film with anymore, um, like Dom and, you know, the other people that I no longer film with, I, I chose to distance myself because I don't align with some of the actions and I don't I don't stand for any kind of misconduct and I I'm I was just I've been really disappointed by some of my friends and for that reason I've separated from a lot of them. In my opinion, I don't know him well enough to like know his vibe, but this to me doesn't feel genuine. It felt very like he's removing himself from the allegations and it's just like one step removed rather than taking responsibility as the like leader of this kind of culty vlog squad. Yeah. And I think it kind of ties into the conversations we've had about boys, like boys clubs and kind of just offending their mates or not even realizing that anything is wrong with their behavior. David, I think from the few videos I've watched of his, he falls into that kind of like average white guy that's funny, jokes around, kind of like the nice guy narrative. And that's where it becomes dangerous, of course. Yeah, it's that thing of like, oh, well, that that person's doing something wrong. So I'm going to like distance myself from them rather than calling your mates out. Yeah. But Let's go on with mm-hmm. the second apology video. So on March 23rd, um, he uploaded the second one. The title of the video is just the date, which is a bit okay. This one is 7.5 minutes. And I feel like it's a bit more accountability. He believe in within one minute, he says he believes the woman who came forward about Dom. Um, he has trigger warnings at the start. He also like mutes out the words rape and sexual assault throughout, which I found interesting. Okay. Mm. He acknowledges that the woman gave consent for the footage to be posted because she felt like she had to give the consent because of his fame and influence, um, not because mm. she wanted to. So I'm glad that he recognized that and verbalized it. The next day I got consent to post the video. Even though I got the consent to post that video, I should have never posted it and I what I understand now and I didn't understand before is that she sent that text because she felt like she had to not because she wanted to and that's fucked up and I'm sorry when she later reached out a couple months later to take the video down I immediately took it down and I want to apologize to her and her friends for ever putting them in an environment that I enabled that made them feel like their safety and values were compromised. I'm so sorry. Have you watched it? I watched some, but I haven't watched it all. I'm glad that he was quite specific about this um, this time around. He also recognized that he platformed Dom and reinforced jokes about sexual assault. As a follow-up, he says he's taking a short break from social media because he wants to create space where people don't feel afraid to come forward when they feel uncomfortable. And now as the consequences are unfolding you know youtube has now temporarily demonetized his account as well as dom's um lots of sponsors are breaking relationships breaking ties with him now which i think is definitely something we have to acknowledge because these allegations did come out a few weeks before he gave this second apology and we have to ask is he doing it because he now realizes the extent of his own like responsibility and actions or is it because he's feeling it hit his wallet yeah i've seen some commentary around that as well and it's like the 2.5 minute one was it kind of felt like he this was just another thing to like apologize for because you know they've done a few apology videos in the past various things Whereas now it felt like the second one was like much more serious. Is that because of his sponsors, you know, falling away or is he being genuine? In my opinion, I felt the second one was a lot more genuine. The way he spoke about the woman who came forward and like the culture that he's created, it felt a bit more um, Mm. like he was taking accountability for it. Many fans have also been calling for beauty influencer James Charles to also have his account demonetized because of his actions. There's been like a number of assault allegations against him. Um, He's also been like traveling everywhere during COVID, creating content 
on TikTok with the Demilios and like when there were the hundreds of thousands of people dying from COVID and, um, you know, then you've got influencers like Emma Chamberlain and Brett Rockman who were just in the houses like creating content by themselves. So James Charles also like fits into this vlog world but we won't get into like his allegations as well but it's interesting that people calling for his account Mm. to be demonetized as well yeah and I think this is like a big problem I have with YouTube drama I sorry I don't also want to say that I'm definitely not um saying that what's happening with the vlog squad is just YouTube drama in the sense that I feel that James Charles is in the news every second day I can't keep up like I get very confused about what we should be focusing on. So for instance, YouTube drama makes up so much of YouTube content nowadays that we kind of amplify maybe like catty behavior between YouTubers. Maybe what happened with James and Tati, even though I don't really know what happened with what's happening now with these like rape allegations. It just, it's tiring because it's like, oh, maybe like someone copied someone's makeup palette and that's massive drama. But then this is also then considered drama. I don't know how to wear this properly. No, I get what you mean because in the first apology video, David actually says, I missed the mark. And he got called out for that because people were like, this isn't missing the mark. Mm. Like this woman is going to have to live with this for the rest of her life. She's traumatized. She's kept this with her for three years nearly. So he addressed that as well in in the second apology video. So I think it's interesting because David is seen as this like goofy, funny, quite harmless guy, as you said before. He's one of the good ones, yet he's still perpetuated and upheld this rape culture and the sexism. And especially after the tragic murder of Sarah Everard in the UK just a few weeks ago, there's been a lot more discussions lately around not just the men who are actually going out and Mm. doing the raping and the murdering, but what are the good guys doing? If they can just like record that like there's footage of guys standing outside the bedroom Mm -hmm. door saying oh I'm getting horny from like listening to this and David has filmed that cut it edited it and put it on the internet before Hannah was like oh no I want it taken down now like who does that that's just that's weird to even film that in the first place even if it's a joke like Mm -hmm. like why are you listening to your friends having sex I don't know if you're watching a 20 year old woman get drunk to the point that she's slurring her words she's getting taken into a bedroom you're recording it that's perpetuating rape culture no ways about it it's not drama it's not funny it's being Mm -hmm. an active participant in sexual assault it's also upholding the patriarchy because of what we were saying before about how david was like oh but i asked her if she consented to the video like going up But, like, of course she was going to feel this, like, power dynamic and, like, especially a patriarchal one if it's, like, majority of the vlog squad are men. And that pressures women saying yes to things when they really mean no. Yeah, it's so disappointing that people still have very one-note views on what consent is or what rape culture is. And it, like, come on, I feel like we as women know that rape isn't just a stranger in an alleyway. We know that people are more likely to be assaulted by someone they know and that little, mi- not even, this, these aren't little microaggressions, but in general, little microaggressions from words that people say, the way that they interact with women, the way they listen or don't listen to women, it all contributes to this culture. And by only looking at the end problem of rape that is neglecting all the warning signs that lead up to it. And it's too, it's too little too late to turn around at the end and be like, Oh, sorry, I missed the mark. No, like it was your Mm. responsibility to know what was happening while it was happening before it was happening. And, and it wasn't like he posted a live stream video. He actually went out and recorded it, edited it probably reviewed it, probably had people reviewing the video and people still thought it was okay. We're also seeing this rape culture be played out in Australian politics at the moment. And I think that's what made me kind of check out of the David saga until, you know, we wanted to talk about it on the podcast because it's like, where have men 
been. Like, if you saw the Tracy Grimshaw Scott Morrison interview, she says the same thing. He's like, oh, I'm real. I'm learning. I'm realizing that, like, women are having these experiences. This isn't a quote. This is just, you know, a general gist of the interview. And she's like, but what are you talking about? Like, where have you been? This this isn't a new issue. This has been happening for centuries, thousands of years. Women have been seen as these, like, second-class citizens and how do you not know that it's wrong to like a 20 year old you can't drink until you're 21 in the u.s how do you not know that that's wrong to supply them with alcohol and then have your older buddies like take them into the room for this like threesome plot like what going back to Oz politics it's the same thing with the liberal mp andrew mm-hmm. lamming who has now said he's going to step down from politics in the next election but he had to go to empathy training because he was like bullying women online this is a person representing a constituency in Australia, in Queensland it is, and he needs training. The fact that he needs empathy training is ridiculous. And same thing with, like, there's a whole number of MPs in Parliament at the moment after Brittany Higgins has come forward saying that she was raped in Parliament. Again, we put, we don't have time to, like, get into all of that stuff right now. We also have listeners who aren't Australian, but it's very interesting that all of these, all of this culture is like coming out now. And I'm glad that David is facing some consequences being the leader of mm-hmm. this group who have been perpetuating these sexual assault jokes. Yeah. Whether it's in our parliament houses or in our YouTube channels, rape culture runs rampant. It's just disgusting to see. In music news now, this past week, Little Nas X, famous for his song Old Town Road featuring Billy Ray Cyrus, premiered his music video for Montero, Call Me By Your Name. Uh, wait, how does, what's Old Town Road? I take this toast on the Old Town Road. <laughs> I said that just so I could hear you sing it. <laughs> of course I know what it is. I wrote the notes for this. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's not the first time that I've sung on here. So. And that's very true. It is a heavily CGI animated music video, which takes us from the Garden of Montero, a play on the Garden of Eden, to a Roman Colosseum, all the way to Satan's Underworld. And I love this song. It's been stuck in my head for like two days and I'm obsessed. I would say it also gets better with each play. When I first clicked onto the music video, I was like, oh my God, like, what is this? What is this? Um, But with each watch... I think it gets better and better. I love it. It is so wild. Um, In it, Lil Nas X, he has a lot of prosthetics on, a lot of um, like heavy makeup. So he's in different characters. I think he plays almost every single character. It's quite wild. Yeah. And it's also based off his, his real name is Montero, which I think is cool. He's like sharing his more of himself to us Mm. than we first found in Old Town Road. But along with the video and the song being released, he actually published a small letter to himself, which is really sweet. So I'm going to read a bit out now. Dear 14-year-old Montero, I wrote a song with our name in it. It's about a guy I met last summer. I know we promised to never come out publicly. I know we promised to never be that type of gay person. I know we promised to die with the secret but this will open doors for many other queer people to simply exist. You see, this is very scary for me. People will be angry. They will say I'm pushing an agenda. But the truth is, I am. The agenda to make people stay the fuck out of other people's lives and stop dictating who they should be. Sending you love from the future, LNX. How lovely was that? I also want to play the start of the song where he has a little snippet introing Montero. In life... We hide the parts of ourselves we don't want the world to see. We lock them away. We tell them no. We banish them. But here, we don't. Welcome to Montero. I'm so proud of him for doing this and releasing this. I don't know if you've seen, but in the past, oh, by the way, he's so good on Twitter. He has very funny commentary and tweets, but a lot of his fans are like, I love him because he's like not overly gay or whatever. And he gets a lot of comments like that. So it is very good to see him very out, very proud. Um, one other thing I want to mention about this letter is that 
Of course, it's written to his younger self and all these silly conservatives on Twitter have not done their research and they're like, I don't want to hear about your relationship with a 14-year-old. What do you mean? Like, blah, 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 blah. And I'm just like, that is so gross. Like, calm down. Calm down. I don't want to profile them too much because they probably love the attention. But I did see one conservative on Twitter, um, an American woman, saying that Newsflash, they banned President Trump from social media, but they didn't ban Little Nas X from riding a stripper pole straight to hell in thigh-high boots just so he could ride Baphomet and his satanic altar all the way down Old Town Road. The song is named Call Me By Your Name because the enemy is an identity thief. When you sent me that, I thought it was satire. Like I was genuinely confused and I had to go through her profile to be like, oh no, I'm so sorry that this person has a blue tick verification and is real. Someone's commented, damn, they're literally putting it in our faces how they're brainwashing the masses with satanic homosexual agenda. But he's clapped back. He's amazing on Twitter, as you said. He said, y'all love saying we're going to hell, but get upset when I actually go there, LMAO. <laughs> I know. And he also retweeted a tweet from one of his fans that read, Lil Nas's music video literally portrayed the fact that he isn't bothered with the idea of going to hell if it means that he gets to accept who he is and his sexuality. So we both read an article by Adam B. Very for Variety, which is titled Little Nas X's Sexed Up Montero Video Has Changed Everything for Queer Music Artists. And it's a very good rundown of like how huge of a moment this is for pop culture in general, but also for queer people. So Adam is a 41-year-old gay man, and in this article he talks about how important this music video and song is to him and we are so happy uh, to have Adam actually read out a few paragraphs on the piece so here it is last night I saw something I didn't quite believe I ever would get to see an openly gay music superstar indulging in a sex and drugs and sin video fantasy in his instantly viral music video for his latest single Montero call me by your name Lil Nas X is unabashedly queer and unmistakably horny, literally and figuratively, ending with a barely clad Nas giving a lap dance to the leather-clad devil before he snaps Lucifer's neck. I don't think it's possible for me, a 41-year-old gay man, to overstate just how monumental it was to see a 21-year-old gay man express his sexuality on exactly the same terms and at the same level of fame, success, and media attention his straight counterparts have enjoyed for decades. Cut to little Nas X grinding on Seton's lap in thigh-high stiletto boots, an image that made me feel old and young again all at once. When debuting the video on Thursday night, Nas also posted a letter to his 14-year-old self with words that resonated deeply for me, and I suspect many other LGBTQ people. After decades of transposing our desires onto the fantasies projected by straight or occasionally bisexual women, here's Lil Nas X providing gay men a sex idol all their own. The video is already nearing 5 million views in roughly 24 hours. Any clutched pearls have been far, far unmatched by fists pumped and streams run on repeat. I cannot wait to see what he's up to next, and it seems I am far from alone. That's fabulous news for Nas and for any other queer artists who wish to follow in his footsteps. It's also, perhaps, bittersweet for the queer artists who've come before Nas, who could have hit these same heights, would they were ever afforded the chance. So in this piece, I really liked how Adam went through kind of the history of gay men in music and how they are portrayed and how their sexuality, I guess, has been portrayed in the media or how they themselves choose to portray it. And I'll read out a bit I really liked. From the stripper pole, short shorts and pelvic undulations to the deliberately provocative religious imagery, Naz evoked everyone from Madonna and Janet Jackson to Nicki Minaj and Megan The Stallion and in doing so, proclaim that he has every right to be just as brazen about his desires and titillating about his body. 
but no music star who's achieved Nas's chart-topping, record-setting level of success and also come out has attempted anything on the scale of what Nas is doing with Montero. Instead, historically, gay men who'd reached a similar career pinnacle at roughly the same age have either had to stay in the closet and sing about women, see New Kids on the Blocks, Jonathan Knight, InSync's Lance Bass and Ricky Martin, or come out after establishing themselves and keep their sexuality in vaguely PG territory, if that. See Elton John, George Michael, Michael Stipe, Mika, and again, Ricky Martin. That's what I thought when I first watched the music video. I was like, oh my God, I'd never Mm. seen a man be portrayed in this way. Yeah, I've never seen a black man embrace his femininity Mm. to that extreme in a music video before it was really refreshing and really cool and I love the fact that he was playing on what he already knew certain people would say about him and this song and all that um like you said I think it's very brave and I'm excited for him Mm -hmm. (laughs) to really shake shake it up and like be a trailblazer for queer people in music to like be able to embrace their sexuality and their desires and their fantasies and have creative fun with their songs rather than trying to like like you said with all the quote said with ricky martin and sync and stuff they have still been trying to like get the female market Mm. and be seen as sex symbols to women whereas now it's like he can be a sex symbol for men. Yes, I feel like we've had this conversation when Harry Styles was on the cover of Vogue and Address and then we also put out a carousel on our Instagram about black men who, um, I guess, confront the gender norms of fashion and dressing and we had some great BIPOC men um, embracing their femininity and I'd love seeing Lil Nas X here doing the same at I would say the height of his career, he's 21. Like I, that is so wild. Like I, I'm 22 now, but I'm just thinking about the guys I went to high school with and people my age. And let me tell you, I don't think they would do this. So I think it's a bold, gutsy move. He could have easily fallen into um, like the other celebrities we just mentioned and kind of straight washed himself, if that's a thing, um, and played the safe route. But what he has done is really brave. And I think he is a very strong role model for a lot of young black queer boys out there. And that's a thing that the conservatives were saying, though, is mm. that, like, because he Old Town Road was such a big hit for kids, I don't think it was, like, meant to be so popular yeah. with children. Like, it's meant to be just, like, a pop song, right? It's about And sex. then he, like, went into that's schools. Sweet. Oh, yeah, duh. I'm going to ride till I can't come home or something. Yeah. <laughs> he, he just like, loves his horse. <laughs> Um, But, yeah, he went into school, a school and sang it. And so now the conservatives like taking that clip of him singing the song with all these kids going crazy and being like, this is pushing the agenda. He's like, and he said on Twitter, like, I'm not catering to your children. Mm. Like, I am an adult and I'm going to make the content or the music that I want to make. So good for him. We are Little Nas X Dance. What do you have to recommend to us this week, Maggie? Yes, we're back in the YouTube world because I am recommending a YouTube video I watched this week. It is by Tiffany Ferg and it is called Why Do Popular YouTubers Stop Uploading? And that is part of her internet analysis series, which as you can guess, she analyzes things on the internet. So Tiffany is a 25-year-old New York-based media studies student who is well known for her internet videos exploring topics like Dote's influencer diversity, the decline in relatability of YouTubers, and breaking down the I'm not like other girls narratives. I really love her videos. I think they are very thoughtful, well-researched, entertaining, and she's got a very good grasp, I would say, especially on the YouTube world. So yeah, love watching your videos. This video in particular looks at how many YouTubers become super popular and then they stop posting and she goes into the potential reasons behind that. As a side note, do you watch many YouTubers, Jazz? No, I'm so not in that world. So anymore. Like I never really was. I don't know why. Um, maybe I don't have the attention span. But she looks really cool. Mm. I haven't heard of her before, but I'm going to follow her. Yeah, I find that so interesting because I'm someone who does really like 
YouTubers and YouTube um, in the realm of internet influencers, um, I always feel that YouTubers particularly are very good at forming parasocial relationships with their viewers, which means they like form a connection and it feels like I'm their friend because more so than just an Instagram photo or story, you really do feel like you've built a connection because you watch long videos about them rather than like a throwaway photo. Mm. In this video, she goes through some of the reasons why some YouTubers might stop posting. And I find it very interesting. I didn't realize to this extent that a lot of popular YouTubers can afford to take long breaks because they earn a passive income from past videos, which I wish was the case from Instagram or something. But yeah, like whenever they get views, no matter how old a video is, they still can earn money off that. Um, I saw somewhere that Yoga with Adrian, I think last year made like $3 million or something, which go her because love her videos. Another thing that Tiffany brings up is that YouTube used to be a place where a lot of YouTubers would regularly post daily vlogs or even post three to four videos a week. But now the conversations around quality versus quantity are coming up. And I would say a lot of YouTubers have that increased pressure to be perfect and produce better content all the time. One of my favorite points she makes though is that the rhetoric we have around creators is so interesting. We maybe see a smaller creator. This also happens on TikTok and Instagram. But when we see someone with a small following count, we're like, oh my God, this deserves a million views. Like how have they not blown up yet? But when these accounts do grow, there's more skepticism around whether they deserve their following. Um, so I'm actually going to play a little snippet of her talking about it now. Another thing that was hard for me, like I mentioned before, is when you're first blowing up and people perceive you as a small channel and they're praising you and saying you're underrated. Suddenly, if your channel grows really fast, you are seen and perceived as a big channel, a large popular creator, a successful YouTuber. But you might not feel like that yet. You might feel like the exact same person you were a few months ago. Nobody's gonna look at a channel that has a few hundred thousand subscribers or a few million and think, oh, that's small indie YouTuber, even though that's who you might still feel like. So then you know people are looking at your channel, they're looking at your videos, they're seeing that sub count and going, does this video meet the expectations that I think people at this level should be reaching? Is this content worthy of having all these subscribers? You can go from being underrated to potentially being called overrated. They don't deserve this many subscribers. Why do so many people like this? It's just a mind fuck, to be honest. The last thing I also want to bring up is that she brings up how content creators are craving smaller, more intimate spaces again. So we've seen this in a lot of things, not just YouTube, but the average person might have a Finsta, so like a private Instagram account where they can just kind of shit post or have close friends or even um, Celeb Spellcheck, which is an like Australian call-out page, I would say. They've recently deleted all their posts and they are c- currently reckoning with themselves how to take care of a page that has, you know, a whole bunch of followers and that when your audience grows you have to be much more careful with your content and it like you know adds such a new level of pressure as well well you were just talking about that on your own instagram like yeah a week ago and so you were saying like how your following's growing and mm. now you think more consciously about what you do and what you say i feel that way and i have like two thousand followers like not even a smidge <laughs> to your like 17,000 people watching your life like that's a lot how have you been reckoning with that and like dealing with that yeah um I talk about it every day I swear I did like every time I bring it up I'm always like I've been on Instagram for like a decade now and in the last year my followings doubled so it feels so strange Tiffany also brings it up but I used to be able to like I remember my followers when someone likes my photo I would like remember their username and their like DP and even sometimes if they change their little Instagram icon I'm like oh yeah they've updated it and I would recognize that and I would have more of a close connection with my followers I feel and now it just feels like I don't know who's there so I'm nervous posting I'm like who are you guys like watching me I used to feel a little bit more safe and I know I still have a very progressive and supportive community and I really like who follows me looking at the demographic it is people 
that are similar to me in terms of age, interests, etc. But it just feels it's weird. It's it's a weird feeling and it's also weird that in terms of successful metrics, we go by numbers and technically getting more followers and getting a bigger audience is successful, but it's also like it comes with a prize, I want to say, even though I am a small account still in, in the scheme of things. Mm. Yeah, I guess it's that balance between wanting to be authentic, mm. which is like such a buzzword now, but mm. wanting to be authentic but also like being aware that like, 17,000 eyes are on you yes to like see what you had for breakfast Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah but this video looks interesting I mean she looks really cool and I mean I love a media analysis as we know so I think I'll be watching her awesome you can even put it on like a podcast she's also got a separate podcast Mm -hmm. which I haven't listened to but yeah usually just chuck her videos on so what are you recommending for us this week Jasmine So last Sunday afternoon, I watched the new Netflix documentary called Operation Varsity Blues, The College Admission Scandal. So this is a documentary about, obviously, the 2019 American College Admissions Scandal. Say that three times. Um, It is directed by the same person who made the Netflix Fire Festival documentary, Chris Smith. I loved that documentary. It was so good. So This one looks into basically the fraud ring that was started by a man named William Singer. He would find these affluent families who had kids who wanted to go to Ivy League schools, Harvard, Yale, Brown, all those things. If they didn't have the grades or for whatever reason they thought they weren't going to get in, William was creating this like fraud ring where these parents would pay thousands of dollars and they'd like make it seem like it's a donation to the school or Mm. um sometimes like the coaches would have a backhand in in the ring and they would um create these like fake profiles for the students where they would say that they were like a polo player water polo player and they would like photoshop images and everything to get these affluent wealthy kids into ivy league schools One of the most famous people to be caught up in this scandal is Olivia J. Giannulli. She is a social media celebrity and YouTuber and is the daughter of actress Laurie Laughlin and fashion designer Mossimo Giannulli. So she basically said that she was a star rower in her school and then that's how she got into the University of Southern California. So this documentary goes into her as well, her story, but like it's mostly about this guy called William Singer who was like frauding all of these people and who was getting caught up in it, what these parents would do. Um, and it's really clever the way that they film it. So they get some testimonies from like kids, you know, teenagers who are like crying over the fact that they didn't get into the school, like through the legit avenues. Mm. And there's this one scene where this girl is like crying or she's been talking about like the stress of how hard it is for kids to get into the schools they want and like the pressure that's put on them. And she goes, there's so much pressure on people. Like everyone's stressed out about exams and there's so much stress to get into these like amazing Ivy League schools. But I'm sure that the people who do get in there really deserve it. And then it cuts to like a vlog of Olivia Jade. And so in the documentary, they're talking about how she vlogs her whole life Mm -hmm. as teenagers, like this affluent girl. And she's saying every day, I hate school. I don't want to be here. Why am I here? I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. But her parents are like, no, you have to go to college. Even though she's like this successful mm-hmm. young woman, she's got like a makeup palette deal with like Sephora, very influential. But yet she was like put into this ring, this fraud ring by her parents. Um, so she's just one of many, many kids. And it's just fascinating the way these affluent people think they can get away with things. And also the fact that they're taking places from maybe like working class or lower income families who have like worked their whole life to get into Harvard, Mm. who like need the scholarships or whatever. One thing that blew my mind is like these are very wealthy people, like million, million, millionaires. Instead of using the resources they already have to like get a tutor if their kid's struggling Mm. or to pay someone a bit extra to like – help out with the process rather than like cheating to get in they still cheat and it's like that the concept of like greed and wealth and like even if you have everything you could ever need and more 
that mindset of like, I need more, I need, I need the the title that comes with having a child who goes to Harvard or the connections you get from being Ivy League rather than, say, Olivia Jade who just wanted to like be a YouTuber. Mm. Um, so it's a very well-made documentary. If you haven't heard of this scandal before, like I, I just find it fascinating. Like a lot of these people also got jail sentences, but they were jailed for like two weeks, a month max. Sometimes they were just made to do community service. And it's like black people in America go to jail for wanting their kid, for like saying that their kid lives at a different house because they're not in the right zone and they go to jail for a year. You know, it's like the way America works. It's like we're so fascinated by these rich people, but we're also so disgusted by them. So would 100% recommend that documentary. It's quite an easy watch, very well made. You don't need to know too much about the subject before to understand what's going on. I find that so interesting. I definitely need to give that a watch. I remember when this scandal happened and it'll be good to see how it's all kind of played out. Does it kind of go through different families, not just Olivia? Yes. Um, They go through different people, but it focuses more on the parents, obviously, because they're the ones who are like frauding the system. Um, It also goes through the coaches who were complicit and who were like getting bribed as like a soccer coach at Yale I think and um through the documentary they do a lot of reenactments um so it's yeah very easy to understand and yeah it's really good that brings us to the end of the episode we've been chatting away for so long it's gotten dark outside thank you listeners for joining us today we so appreciate you being here if you enjoyed we would so appreciate a rate or review that would be so lovely thanks for listening everyone and we will chat to you next week see ya bye